0: Please turn this evening to the book of Exodus, chapter 20. Exodus, chapter 20. Our text is found in verse 7. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain." We move on in our study this evening of the Shorter Catechism and its treatment of the law of God to the third commandment. And as we work through the outline in the catechism, you will see that there are four questions and answers in total that explain this precept, beginning with the simple question, what is it? And then moving to what is required in the third commandment before considering what is forbidden. And then, fourthly, what is the reason annexed to the third commandment? That's not an unusual pattern to you. We've seen that in the previous commandments. Indeed, what we have here really follows the exact uh, outline that we looked at in relation to the second commandment. But as to question in answer 53, which is the third commandment, it really supplies our text. It simply states Exodus chapter 20 verse 7. The third commandment is, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. And then following that question and answer 54, what is required in the third commandment? The third commandment requires the holy and reverent use of God's names, titles, attributes, ordinances, word, and works. So, if we step back and look at commandment 1, 2, and 3, uh, you should understand what's happening here in, in the logical flow of God's law. The first commandment tells us that we are to worship the one true and living God and Him alone. The second commandment tells us that we are to worship the one true and living God in the way that he prescribes, that we are not to worship the true God by images or by any other way not appointed in his word. The third commandment takes us further and somewhat deeper. It deals with our heart attitude. So we are to come to the true God through the means that he has appointed, but we are to come with a holy and careful reverence. It extends, of course, wider than worship to the whole of life. This commandment governs our speech. It even governs our deportment, our attitude. Now you go out into the wider Christian world, even the professedly conservative Christian world, even, sad to say, the borders of the Reformed Christian world, and the name of the Lord is flagrantly taken in vain. That's been one of the shocks to me coming to North America that those who identify themselves as evangelical Christians blatantly take the name of the Lord in vain. Now we'll say more of that in weeks to come. But they say, I don't cuss. You'd be better cussing than taking the name of the Lord in vain. It's the worst thing that we can do with our tongue. There's a commandment explicitly for it. Now, I'm not promoting cussing in any way, shape, or form. I'm simply wanting to emphasize to you the severity of using the name of the Lord in a light or in a vain manner. But this commandment goes way beyond simply taking the name of the Lord our God in vain the way you might obviously recognize that. It goes much broader, much deeper. Remember we said at the start of our study on the catechism that the Ten Commandments are really ten summary statements of loads of moral commandments in the Bible? Well, so it is here. It's not, in a sense, one command. It's myriad of commands that we find in the Scripture that govern how we are to use our speech and how we are to interact with everything that God has revealed in a holy and in a reverent way. Well, let's consider, first of all, God's name. We are not to take the name of the Lord, our God, in vain. And the word vain means light, or it can mean in a false way. But on the contrary, it's not just something is forbidden here. There is something that is positively required, and that is you are to sanctify the name of the Lord. You're not to take it in vain. On the other hand, you are to sanctify the name of the Lord. And the Catechism goes on to elaborate on what is meant by the name of God in Scripture. And it tells us that it includes the names of God. The titles of God, the attributes of God, the ordinances of God, the word of God, and the works of God. That's to help you understand the significance of the biblical concept of God's name. And hopefully you'll understand that better this evening. But to summarize it, we can say this. God's name is everything by which he makes himself known. It's how he is pleased to reveal himself in his nature and his character and his will to the world. God's name is everything by which he makes himself known. First of all, his names. You'll note that these are distinguished in the shorter catechism from his titles, and we'll come to those in a moment. But the idea here is that the names of God are something that God gives to himself. God doesn't need a name. God knows himself infinitely, perfectly, eternally. He doesn't need labels so as to know himself. But names describe things, don't they? And here God names himself for our benefit. He gives names to himself to convey something to us of his glory and his perfections. So you can think of the general name of God. It just bursts on the scene in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. There's no argument for the fact that God exists. It's just declared. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Barishath, Barah Elohim. There's the name. God. Right in the very first verse of Scripture. When God reveals himself by general names like God and Lord, they're declaring often to us his sovereignty, that he is the supreme being, the creator, the sustainer of heaven and earth. So you have those more general names for God. But then you have a more particular name, Jehovah. And Jehovah communicates to us God's absolute self-existence that he is off himself from eternity without need of anything else and completely incapable of change. Exodus chapter 6 would be an example of this. Verse 3. Exodus chapter 6 and verse 3. And I appeared unto Abraham unto Isaac and unto Jacob by the name of God God Almighty. But by my name Jehovah was I not known to them. And that's not true absolutely because God was revealed as Jehovah to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But what he's saying here is they did not get to understand as much as you were about to understand with regard to the meaning of that name. Because you are about to witness the Exodus. Exodus chapter 3, we have a name that's very much linked to Jehovah. God appears to Moses, and Moses says, after being commissioned to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt, who will I tell them sent me? And God says something remarkable. Tell them I am sent you. What a name. Tell them absolute existence sent you. One who is, one who was, and one who is to come. Moses, you need not fear Israel, and Israel need not fear Pharaoh. No matter, no matter what strength and power you imagine him to have, I am... Is sending you unto him. Then God reveals himself as Trinity under the names of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, or more properly, under the name of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Jesus commissions his church that we go forth to disciple the nations, baptizing them into the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And so, we have these three names, but they are one name expressing the equality of each of the persons in the Godhead. So, you've got a general name, you've got a more particular name, and then you have God revealed as Trinity. God's names. But then, secondly, God's titles. Now, Fisher, in his commentary on The Shorter Catechism distinguishes God's titles from his names by pointing out that God's names often describe what God is in himself. I am. Whereas his titles reveal him in his relation to others. What do we mean? Well, take, for example, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28, where he is the creator of the ends of the earth. What's that tell you about God? It's telling you something about God in relation to the creation that he has made. Then we look at God, and he doesn't just reveal himself as Elohim, God, but he reveals himself frequently as the God of For example, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. So he's God in relation to his covenant people. Another title would be the Lord of hosts. So he's not just Jehovah, but he is Jehovah in relation to the armies of heaven and all that he governs in his sovereign majesty. Job chapter 7 verse 20 describes him as as the preserver of men. And there are numerous other titles in the Bible which, of course, do the same thing. Jehovah said, Can you? The Lord, our righteousness. Names of God that describe God's relationship to us. And something else you will notice about that, and we highlighted it in our study on the names of God a few years ago, that oftentimes it's people who name God. So, so Moses builds an altar and calls it Jehovah Nissi. The Lord is our banner. God does some great work, and the people respond, and we have a new title for God in connection to the work or the relationship to the people. So we've got God's names, God's titles. Another example here would be Revelation chapter 15, verse 3 and four. And we looked at this last time. But listen again to what we read there. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints, who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name. For thou only art holy, for all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. How often we find this in Scripture, that the godly are heaping up names to describe God and to glorify Him. Thirdly, here we have attributes. And the attributes of God are properties that we used to describe God's nature. There are characteristics, we might say, from a human perspective that belong to God. But God is one. God is not divided up into bits. So when you think of the attributes of God, you don't think of God as like a pie chart of attributes and one section is holy, and one section is good, and one section is just, and so forth. God does not have attributes in that sense. God is all of these attributes. They describe the essence. He's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in every one of these properties that we describe, ascribe to Him. So in that portion that we just read in Revelation chapter 15, he is Lord God Almighty, therefore he's a God of power. Power is an attribute. Then heaven sings, for thou only art holy. God's holiness is an attribute. We'll likely come to this next time. But when you get people using the attribute holy, and then appending something else to it and using it in vain. It's an abomination to God. Christians don't think like that. That's why we need to have our minds transformed by the renewing of God's Word. Well, children, what is God? Question and answer four. God is a Spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. In his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. There are the attributes of God. They describe to us what God is like. And every single one of those attributes is to be reverenced. Fourthly, his ordinances. This connects the second commandment to the third. The ordinances of God are his appointed means and parts of worship. And so, in his sovereignty, he gives them to us. And all of these are designed to harmonize with exactly who God is. And every one of them is fitting for us to use to give glory Indeed, as we said in the second commandment, it is vital that he reveals this to us and that we do not try to work out how to worship God in our own. We will only get it wrong. But when God gives to us the means and the ordinances of worship, receiving them, we are not to use any of them in vain. We're thinking here of the sacraments. Singing praise to the Lord. Praying to the Lord. Reading and preaching God's Word. Taking our lawful oaths and vows before Him. Now the reality here is that we've come to attend to these things tonight. And even as we engage in them, we are guilty of the breach of this law. I see it from where I sit. Singing psalms, yet not singing psalms. Or singing them carelessly or lightly. And what's going on in the heart? Even when we appear to be singing them with gusto, we draw near with our lips, but... Our hearts can be far from the Lord. And as I'm observing that and thinking about what's going on here, guess what? I'm stuck. I'm stuck in the problem of not giving due attention to what I'm doing in the singing of praise. God's ordinances are to be taken seriously and engaged in with reverence. His word, likewise. As I said earlier, God's name is everything through which he makes himself known. However, there is an order here of priority because God's chief self-revelation is recorded in the Bible. And so God puts a premium on Scripture in relation to this. And so we sang earlier in Psalm 138 for this reason. Listen to what we sang. I will praise thee with my whole heart. Before the gods will I sing praise unto thee. I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. Now, particularly these words. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. Did you ever stop? And think, what does that mean? Well, Remember we've said God's name is everything by which he makes himself known? Very well, God says, Among all of that, there is something that stands above, above all the rest. It's my word. Thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. Luther gives a somewhat looser translation, but it gets the sense... He says this, Thou hast made thy name glorious above all through thy word. That's the idea. Above all through thy word. For this reason, brethren, that in the Bible, God is most clearly revealed, particularly his will for our salvation. Salvation. And so he gives us particular promises that are of the utmost importance to us. And then he gives us clear instruction concerning everything that he requires of us for faith and life. We can see his glory in creation, and we'll come to that in a moment. But creation does not teach us the way the Bible teaches us in its specificity to our need of sinners. Fourthly, God's name is his works. Because all of the works of God are revelatory. They show us something of who he is, and therefore they declare God's name to men. Consider the works of creation and providence. Pick up Psalm 19. What do we sing there? But that God manifests his glory in the heavens. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. The firmament showeth forth his handiwork. It's saying to us, everything you see around you is a declaration of the glorious name of God. In it, you see the eternal power and Godhead of God. Psalm 8 that we sang explicitly links it to God's name. O Lord, that is Jehovah, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. And there's the psalmist standing in awe, and he looks up to the vast expanse of the sky above him, and he considers the moon and the stars, and he says, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him?" Now, no doubt he knows the Bible, but he hasn't read a word of it. He's just looking at the creation and he's saying, what am I in comparison to God if God has manifested His glory so powerfully in creation? How excellent is Your name in all the earth. Everywhere I go, I see the declaration of the most excellent name of God. Yes, Lord, You've made me a vice-regent. You've given me dominion over the work of your hands. And the fish and and the the, 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 the birds in the air, they're all under the dominion of man. But it's not man's name that's excellent. He sandwiches the whole of the psalm between two declarations. How excellent, O Lord, is thy name in all of the earth. But then we have the works of redemption. The work of creation is glorious, and God declares his name. But God declares his name nowhere more gloriously than in the person and work of Jesus Christ. What a gross wickedness to take the name of Jesus Christ and use it in vain. Does he declare the name of the Lord? Listen to what he prays to his father, John chapter seventeen, verse six. I have manifested thy name unto the men whom thou hast given me out of the out of the world. He's revealing God. All of the names of God, all of the titles of God, all of the attributes of God converge in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that God, the triune God, manifests His name to the world, to heaven and to earth, in nothing more glorious than this. Turn, if you will, to Psalm 111 where the Old Testament church speaks and sings of God's works. Looking back at works and anticipating no doubt greater works. Psalm 111, and we'll work through quite a few verses here. But the exhortation is, Hallelujah, praise ye the Lord. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. And see how he goes to the works of the Lord, verse 2. The works of the Lord are great, sought out of all them that have pleasure therein. His work is honorable and glorious, and His righteousness endureth forever. He hath made His wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. He hath given meat unto them that fear Him. He will ever be mindful of His covenant. He hath showed His people the power of His works that He may give them the heritage of the heathen. The works of His hands are verity and judgment. All of His commandments are sure. They stand fast forever and ever and are done in truth and uprightness. He sent redemption unto His people. He hath commanded His covenant forever. Now, listen to what he says. Holy and reverend is His name. That's Israel looking back at creation. Wonderful works. At redemption from Egypt as God brings them in and gives them the promised inheritance. He's given redemption unto His folk. Holy and to be revered to be honored, to be sanctified, to be adored. is the name of our God. And we stand on the other side of the cross, of which the exodus from Egypt was but a pale figure. And in the person of Christ, he has, he has sent glorious redemption unto his people. And the response of the church is, Thou hast manifested thy name in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Holy and reverend is your name. So then God's name, His names, His titles, His attributes, His ordinances, His word, and His works. I trust you understand by this point that when God says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. That he's not talking about one or two titles in a phrase that you say. Oh, it includes that. But it's way more than that. Secondly, God's requirement. The catechism asks specifically what is required in reference to this extensive name of God. And the answer is the holy and reverent use of God's name. We are to sanctify the name of God. Now, the first thing I draw to your attention here is that we are to use God's name. The holy and reverent use of God's name. We're to use God's name. Though this God is infinite, so that He requires so many names and titles and designations and descriptions to convey to us something of His glory, and though our words can never fully describe Him or find Him out unto perfection, and though He is so majestic and holy that we rightly tremble at the very thought of Him and may fear because of that, to take the name of God upon our lips. The third commandment bids us, indeed commands us, to do so. You are to rightly use the name of God. Well, that is tremendously encouraging. Because this command that's stated in the negative actually, in the first place, bid you come. It says to sinners, there is a way that you can properly use my name. But it's a holy way. It's a reverend way. What happens is when we come to understand this name properly, we don't merely stand afar off, trembling the same name draws us near. Remember Psalm 9 and verse 10? A psalm that speaks about judgment and God overthrowing his enemies, and there in the midst of it, we read this. They that know thy name shall place their confidence in thee. The glorious name of God draws the hearts of the godly to him. So, you rightly use God's name. That means that you will think upon these titles. You will study his word. You will engage in the ordinances of worship. You will meditate upon the attributes of God, and you will study his works and the glory and perfection of them. It was actually in this regard that the Jews made a particular error, and I I fear much of the Christian church at points has followed it. The error was this. They so revered the name of God in the Old Testament, the name Jehovah in particular, describing it as God's incommunicable name, four Hebrew letters that they called the tetragrammaton, the incommunicable name, that it was such a high and holy name that it wasn't to be used. So every time they came in Hebrew to the name Jehovah, they didn't say Jehovah, they said Adonai. If you were brought up as a Jew, you would know this. You come to the Shema. The Lord our God is one Lord. And you would be saying, Adonai. Shema Israel, Adonai. Elohenu, Adonai, Echad. You wouldn't say, Jehovah. They were well-meaning but they actually surrender to a false piety and superstition. Now, when we come into the New Testament, it is true that the name Jehovah doesn't really appear because the apostles followed on from using this term Lord, kurios. But it's also true that when we go to the Old Testament, this word does appear. And it has implications for the third commandment. The third commandment requires us to use this name reverently. It doesn't require us to set aside this name. This is what the Jews did. They wanted to keep the law of God, so they ring-fenced it. They made their own laws because they thought, ah, if we keep our own laws, then that will give us two or three degrees of protection from breaking God's law. But it never works like that because the traditions of men end up becoming the law and we go ahead and break God's law anyway. What I'm saying is this, the misuse of God's name is forbidden but the right use of God's name is commanded. We are to use God's name. Secondly here, we are to revere God's name. Psalm 111, holy and reverent is thy name. Well, think about this even in the prayer that the Lord Jesus Christ teaches us to pray. You've got on the one hand a term of great intimacy, our Father. And on the back of that, you've got a term of transcendent glory. Who art in heaven? And the next phrase says, hallowed be thy name. To hallow something means to sanctify it, to set it apart. And so all those utensils in the Old Testament, they were hallowed things. They were sanctified things. The Lord says after He destroys Nadab and Abihu, who did not hallow the name of the Lord in public worship, what does He say? I will be sanctified in them that draw near Me. It's the same idea. Our Father, intimacy, who art in heaven, transcendent glory, hallowed be thy name. Let it be set apart from everything else. Let it be feared and revered because you only, Lord, art holy. Well, what that means for Christian experience is that we come with confidence to our Father, yet at the same time with immense reverential awe because our Father is the God of heaven and earth. As in prayer, so in all worship. This commandment tells us that a sense of reverence should dominate worship. A sense of reverence. Whether you're worshiping God alone in your closet, or whether you called a family to family worship, how often it can be so casual oh, we just call the family to worship and everybody ambles in and sits down, it's family worship time again. Very quickly, we can take the name of the Lord in vain. When we come together as the people of God in the public assembly, we are called to reverence His Majesty. Is it any wonder that many professed evangelical Christians run around blatantly taking God's name in vain when the sense of reverential awe has long left the public worship of God? God isn't to be feared anymore. Why would we be concerned about blaspheming him? Reverence is not incompatible with joy. It's the closest friend of true joy. When you understand the third commandment, you will recognize that this will govern the style of worship that the church is to engage in. The attitude of the worshiper when he comes before the Lord, it will direct us to what worship really is and it will preserve us. From putting man at the center of worship and turning worship into an entertainment tailored to the desires of the flesh. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Reverence for the name of God has to dominate. but more than worship. In the whole of life, reverence for the name of God has to dominate. The larger catechism, as we always discover, is larger. Question and answer 112 takes this to the whole of our conversation. What is required in the third commandment? The third Commandment requires that the name of God, his titles, attributes, ordinances, the word, sacraments, prayer, oaths, vows, vows, lots, his works, and whatsoever else there is whereby he makes himself known be holily and reverently used. Listen, in thought, meditation, word, writing, by a holy profession and answerable conversation. In other words, answerable life to the glory of God and the good of ourselves and others. Do you know what your forefathers are saying there in that answer? That the name of God, as it reveals His glory, transforms everything. Everything. Your thoughts, your speech, your writing, what you do online. How you communicate says something about what you think about God. I, I've brought this up before, and I think, you know, sometimes you, you may treat me a little bit like Lot when he went to his sons-in-laws, and they mocked. When he told them fire was going to fight to fall out of heaven upon Sodom and Gomorrah. I tell you that this governs the way you act, the way you speak. And you think, well, there, you know, uh, here's a guy in his mid-40s, he doesn't understand uh, the younger generation. We just use different language. Why do you use different language? It's not because the language is godly, is it? It's not because you're viewing the whole of life dominated by this God who is glorious, and that glory touches everything. We treated this at the family conference. We emphasized particular things, the dude culture and the bruh society, and it hasn't changed. My children sometimes comes in and say, what's up, bruh? Do you know what response they get? Nothing, nothing. Do you know why? It's connected to this. Oh, you wouldn't take the name Jesus or God in vain, but you don't understand the depths of this law as it governs our thoughts, our speech, our writing, our texting, everything. Brethren, God is really that glorious. He doesn't condone imbecility. Everything in creation declares his glory, friends. Everything. And it's so glorious, it governs all of our responses to that creation. The man who has seen God has his whole tenor of life and conversation changed by it. That's connected to our text. Gravitas, as we spoke of it, is commanded by the third commandment. It's required by it. You revere God's name in the whole of life, you revere God's name in Christ. As we mentioned, The Word of God is the chief revelation that we've received from Him. But the Word incarnate who is revealed in the Bible is the One who perfectly declares the Godhead. The incarnate Word is the heart of the written Word. Well, that has implications in relation to our command. There can be no reverencing the name of God if we do not see him revealed to us, sinners in Christ. It's impossible. You can get the right form of words. You can go through the right posture in worship. You can conform to a sense of respect and reverence in the house of God. But there can be no true reverencing the name of God unless we come to him through his Son. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way to the Father but by him. So until you understand the implications and the glory of this name, Jesus, you will only ever take the name of the Lord in vain. He is the one who has declared the Father. He is the one who has manifested the name of God in the world. He is the one to whom the Father has given a name which is above every name and at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. How do we get from the gospel to the law? The third commandment takes you right there and says the only way you can keep this commandment is by beginning to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you pray to the Father? Jesus says, ask in my name. Everything else is a taking the name of the Lord, our God, in vain. We reverence the name of Jehovah in coming to him through the name of Jesus. And it is arrogance and gross irreverence for a sinner to ever imagine that he can approach God in any other way than through the name of Jesus Christ. The third commandment is telling you this evening, repent and believe the gospel. Recognize that Jesus Christ is the manifestation of the glory of God for the salvation of sinners and that the only way you can come is through him. That the only way you can get down on your knees and rightly pray is when you come to the Father in the name, the glorious name of the Son. Well then, as we move to a close, let's consider the reverent use of God's name. Firstly, the reverent use of the names and titles of God. Other religions have the same concept in their religions. Many of them would not speak the name of their God without going through a ritual of purification. So they would wash themselves before they would even utter the name of their God. Now, of course, these were nothing but vain traditions, but the principle that they illustrate properly applies to us when we come to use the name of our God. Now, children, I am not saying that before you take the name of God upon your lips, you have to go into the bathroom and shower and goes through a whole ritual of purification. We're not saying that. But you are to use it thoughtfully, reverently, always in the appropriate context and with the proper dignity. Do you understand this evening? That it is not something that you are going to take upon your lips lightly. So when you get down on your knees to pray, very likely you will begin your prayer with words like these O God, Father in heaven, what awe! What awe should be on the heart of a sinner to confidently and rightly even utter those words? Secondly, the reverent use of the ordinances and word of God, the things God has given us to commune with him, to learn of him, To respond to him, professing our dependence, praising his name. We come into his presence to rejoice. But joy, as I said earlier, is the best friend of holy fear. Think of Psalm 2. The Lord brings the two things together, and he says, rejoice with trembling. Rejoice with trembling. We don't want to simply tremble and not rejoice, nor do we want to rejoice and not tremble. We we want a mature Christian experience. We want a balanced piety. It's not one to the exclusion of the other. It's both. When you pick up his word to read it, you don't ritually wash the way the scribes did when they were transcribing copies of the Bible, but you remind yourself in preparation of what you're going to do that I'm taking up the word of the living God in my hand, something more glorious than everything that he has manifested in the works of creation and providence. Remember Psalm 138? Thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. That's what I'm picking up. The chief revelation of the name of God in the world. What a privilege and a holy duty. What a thing it is to come to the public assembly and hear the words, let us read the word of God. Of God. What a thing to sit under the preaching of the word that He's appointed to be the power of God unto salvation. And even in the preaching of it, many times we don't give it a tithe of the attention that it deserves. One specific example here of particular application is what we call lawful oaths and vows. So an oath is when we invoke the name of God as a witness to what we swear. A vow is when we enter into an engagement to God or to man in the fear of God. It can be a personal vow. It can be a vow of marriage. It can be a social vow. Vow as a covenant in terms of national covenanting. And these things have respect to the name of God. His name is to be reverently employed. Now, sometimes you'll go to Matthew chapter 5 and you'll read there Jesus rebuking uh, the religious people of his day. And he seems to say that we ought not to swear in the name of God. Matthew 5, verse 33, Again ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, Swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one of thy hair white white or black. And people say, well, there you go. You ought not to swear in this way. You ought not to swear in the name of God. But please understand the context. What Jesus is addressing here are Jewish hearers who swore superstitiously by everything and anything. I swear by the temple. I swear by the heavens and earth the way people did when i when i grew up and you went to school and somebody wanted to assure you that that they were really being truthful and they would say something like this foolishly i swear on my mother's life the bible says no you are not to do that but the bible equally commands us to enter into lawful oaths and vows by swearing in the name of the lord Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. Fear God, serve Him, and swear by His name. You've had Christians foolishly going into courts and being asked to swear in the name of God, that they will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And they say, well, I'm a Christian. I don't believe in swearing. They're a Christian who needs to learn the Bible. When we swear in the name of God, we make sure we do it rightly, with due pause, with consideration, that we do not take the name of God in vain in our oaths, but rather do so with reverence. Finally, we reverently regard the works and the government of God. We look out at the world and give God his place as the all-wise and powerful creator and sustainer. And the Psalms are replete with this. They they help you here. But modern education has fundamentally forgotten this. It denies creation. The whole enterprise is an ongoing breach of the third commandment to try and study the world that God has made by denying the God who made it. You're taking the name of God in vain in every single part of the curriculum. The recognition of this world to be God's That he has made it and manifests his glory in it and upholds it continually by the word of his power, so so that if he didn't, the whole thing would immediately disintegrate. Now we have the context for studying the works of creation and providence, and we see it manifesting the greatness of his power and Godhead but then we extend that to the providence of God so that we, in terms of the third commandment, acknowledge him in all of his works, all of the time, particularly those works that pertain to ourselves in our circumstances. Thanking God for his daily mercies. Recognizing that all of our trials are not haphazard events but predetermined and personally tailored to our needs. That's the holy and reverent use of God's works. You find Job doing this when everything is unleashed upon him. And you come to the end of Job chapter 1, to those immortal words of the sufferer, and he magnifies God in submitting to his sovereignty and providence. Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped. What's just happened? He's lost everything. And he worships and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return hither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. That is an example of not taking the name of God in vain in the midst of our trials. When you head out to work tomorrow morning and you hit the, the traffic jam, and you start to get all angry and fight against God's providence. You're taking the name of the Lord in vain. It's as if God didn't know, hadn't planned exactly what was taking place at that moment in your life. Maybe you should have got up earlier and went to work earlier. That's possible. Maybe that wouldn't have changed anything. But the fact is, God is in control. Last Friday morning, Mr. Taylor, who I was with, likes to be way beyond on time. My personality and his are quite different in that. And so we had a discussion on Thursday night. What time were we going to go to the airport at? I said, well, I think we need to go at 8 o'clock. He said, no, 7.30. Uh, I said, well, brother, I love you enough to leave at 7.30. He said, well, we'll make it 7.45. So I get up to go, and uh, he says, actually, the flight's delayed. We don't have to leave for another hour. We can't fly out of Calgary. And so that had huge ramifications because I was going to miss my flight in Chicago to Raleigh, and we tried to get that sorted, and nothing would work. And I thought, well, I can either glorify God in this Or disgrace him. And the fight began. Lord, bring my heart in line with your providence. And the Lord brought perfect peace. Driving up the road. It's in the Lord's hands. Remember we said that every commandment of God is good? You can learn that. You can fight against providence. You're going to get wound up, stressed out, and you're going to be miserable. Or you can keep this commandment, submit to the Lord and know perfect peace in the midst of all of your circumstances. Do you see the extent of this commandment? Finally, the work of Christ. Ultimately, you... Sanctify the name of the Lord by resting in the finished work of His Son and praising the name of Jesus forever and forever. Let's stand for prayer. O Lord our God, how excellent is Your name in all the earth. How excellent is your name in all the scriptures. How excellent is your name in every part of worship. How excellent is your name in the works of providence. Bring our hearts to reverence and adore you. To humbly submit and there rejoice. Teach us what it is to fear thy name biblically and to to delight in all of thy ways. Give us eyes to see, to sanctify the name of our God everywhere we go in this world as you declare it continually to us in the heavens, even in our own existence. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. We always have subject material for praising and glorying and honoring your name. Teach us to do so. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.